This episode is brought to you by Sunshine Vaccines, Friends and Family Reunions, and Summertime. Welcome back, everybody, to My Fake Girl Chemist. I'm your host, Geraldo. And I'm Beck. We're really excited to share today's episode. Last week, we hosted our first Pride Summer event, a live panel discussion about LGBTQ plus people in science communication and science policy. We featured four incredible forces in the field of SciCom and SciPol and raised $140 for the Transgender Law Center, an organization that is working to advocate for and save the lives of transgender people in this country. With that, here's our show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first My Favorite Group Chemist live panel, LGBTQ Plus in Science Communication and Science Policy. Tonight's profits will be supporting the Transgender Law Center, which is the largest national trans-led organization that advocates for our transgender and gender non-conforming siblings. We thank everyone here for their support and participation. And so with us tonight, we have four amazing panelists. Uh, first is Sam Britton. Sam is the executive director of Core Solutions Consulting, through which they serve as a director of global affairs for the Nuclear Waste Startup the Isolation. They've also have spoken before the United Nations and Congress, as well as testified on legislation from coast to coast, both on advanced nuclear waste management and on LGBTQ plus equality. Sam is one of the world's leading advocates for LGBTQ plus youth as the Vice President of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the Trevor Project, the world's largest organization focused on crisis and suicide prevention efforts amongst lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning youth. Sam holds two graduate degrees from MIT in nuclear science and engineering and technology policy with the research concentration on system analysis of nuclear fuel cycles. Next up. Oh, sorry. Great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Next up is Josie Caballero, who was born and raised in small town, Texas. Josie is the project manager for the U.S. U.S. Transgender Survey at the National Center for Transgender Equality. Josie plays a crucial role in organizing and coordinating researchers, academics, and activists across the U.S. to ensure the scientific integrity and efficacy of the USGS. Josie is a U.S. Navy veteran that worked as a nuclear reactor operator for six years. Most recently, she worked in a political campaign management and consulting across the U.S. for nearly a decade. Josie also has the unique experience of having been a candidate for congressional office. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Next up is Dr. Kate Chapman. Kate is a queer science journalist with a master's in pharmacy and a PhD in the history and philosophy of science. He was a former comment editor of Chemistry World and has written the world-renowned magazines and organizations such as New Scientist, Nature, and the BBC. His first book, Super Heavy, Making and Breaking the Periodic Table, was a finalist for the AAAS SBNF Awards for Young Adults. Thank you for having me. And last but not least is Ariana Remmel. Ari is a recovering chemist turned science journalist based in Little Rock, Arkansas. They have written print and audio news stories for KQED Public Radio, Chemical and Engineering News, and Nature, among others. Ariana also writes a column of personal essays called Better Living Through Chemistry for Catapults. So these are our panelists. Um, We're so happy to have y'all all all here with us um, for tonight's event. Um, And with that, we'll jump into the questions. 
So this first question is for everybody. Um, so any of y'all can feel free to answer. So first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get interested in science communication or science policy? So I, I guess I jumped into science communication because I always loved writing. Um, that was the one thing that sort of I loved doing as a kid. It was a way to express myself, um, particularly in my teenage years. It was the only way to express myself. I was actually terrible at writing. I was flunking English and I got involved in sort of role playing and things like that and, and writing long play by email. That, that's how old I am. And just started improving myself. But I also got to express myself and explore different identities there as well, which really helped me um, from an LGBT perspective. And so when I was doing my degree, I realized I didn't quite, I didn't quite fit into the, the pharmacy model. I didn't want to become a pharmacist. So I started looking for alternatives and I gave myself a year. I said, I've got a fantastic backup career here, but what do I really want to do? I really want to write. And fortunately, I managed to get a job as a reporter. And from there, I just realized how much I loved being able to share stories. That's what I love doing. I have a very similar story to Kit. Um, I was in a chemistry PhD program and not having a good time. My favorite part of being a chemist for me was digging into the research and writing research proposals and getting to the point where I was able to make presentations and translate what seemed to be a very niche topic in polymer chemistry, which is what I was writing on, and being able to explain it not only to other people in my own department, but um, I used to take lift rides or ride shares just so that I could talk to the driver about whatever I happened to be reading about at the time. And that was always a challenge because I'd always have like, I don't know, three to five minutes to get the point across. And I knew that I had done a good job when they asked a follow-up question. And this is when I was like, oh, Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a way for me to use this skill set and use the knowledge that I have and apply it to the people who actually are curious about what I'm doing, the folks who aren't necessarily involved in research, but need to have access to the results of the scientific enterprise in order to make meaningful decisions in their lives. So I left my program, I uh, left with a master's and then went and did a formal science communication program um, with UC Santa Cruz. Uh, and that really gave me the, the basic skill set that I needed to go into journalism, which is primarily what I do now. Um, and it, it, it was a great decision for me. Um, I guess I'll go. Um, so I, I always think about like the how I got into the nuclear program for the United States Navy. And it was because in my hometown, you know, I grew up in a kind of a racist town. I'm not going to say kind of is racist town. And, and um, so I was never given like a lot of opportunity, like counselors weren't being like, Hey, Josie, you're doing good in school. So I just went into the Navy recruiting station. I was like, Hey, give me the hardest intellectual job you got. And they're like, Oh, you could be a nuclear engineer. I was like, great, I'll take it. And did I know that, you know, at 18 years old, I was making a huge decision for the six years of my life? I thought I did when I signed up. But, I, uh, you know, even though the military was not for me, I remember a time I was sitting in front of the, the reactor operator panel with all the lights and numbers and all that type of stuff. And I was just like, just epiphany hit me. I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And then people are, I just like said it out loud. And like, everybody's like, um, then what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know, but it involves talking for a living. Um, and so <laughs> I, I was like, I'm getting it out. Um, and then I got into the political sciences. And, and so, so then I was able to like understand like research, how to read papers. And I was like, 
already like steeped in like, you know, understanding how to read papers and, and knowing how to regurgitate knowledge and tests and things of that nature. So how I ended up at NCTE and am now one of the leading trans researchers in the country, I, I now am able to use that 10 years of political experience of being able to communicate, coalition building, working with all different people from all walks of life, and also take my science literacy that I have and understanding science to be able to be like, okay, I can talk to scientists and I can talk to activists. So let me put these two things together. And it became this perfect marriage um, where the role that I serve today as the project manager of the US Trans Survey um, and the largest survey that exists. So um, in the US. So I, I, that's what got me into science communication because it's always, in my opinion, kind of been a hard thing for a scientist to tell a layperson, like Ari is saying, um, because people just don't know that science literacy. So being able to break it down in the layman's terms is critical to connect with the science and the person. So that's my, that's my passion. That's what I love. I love that, Josie. I, um, I may have said this earlier uh, on conversations uh, in this in this area, but um, my nuclear story is literally me trying to get away from my family and trying to get away from my parents. Right, so I chose nuclear engineering because it was at the school that wasn't where my parents wanted me to go. wasn't in that state. Like it was the it was like Josie, right? Like the like get me out of here. Um, I just want I I don't care. Just get me somewhere. Thankfully, it worked out. Right, but that wasn't. That wasn't, that's not a reason to choose a career based on like hating your parents. Like dear teens listening to this, you may want another career choice here. Um, But my science policy space came from the rarity of what I was, right? There's not very many nuclear engineers out there and there's very few who are willing to put on, you know, a nice lipstick and talk to someone, right? Like that is not a nuclear typical um, moment, which made me invaluable. And for, for science policy, I think there is this, um, because all, as every one of my colleagues have, have said, right, like there's this lack of science literacy, science policy is trying to break through that and say, you may not all understand all of this, but you have the power to make decisions that will influence every piece of it. So I'm going to try to explain this, not in a way necessarily trying to give you the same level of education, not trying to even get a lot of questions back but enough so that you understand the power of your decisions, the power of your policy. And once I realized that I could start to influence that, I mean, that's a power rush. Like, sorry, science policy is the definition of a power rush because you're sitting there going like, oh, like I can, I can influence how my future and fellow scientists are gonna be able to do their work if I can do mine really well in the policy arena. Yeah, that, that is a lot of power, like you say. It, it sometimes, and I think that was mentioned, someone mentioned that it's, it's like really hard to connect the science person with the non-science person. And so everyone here is that great like link between that, you know, and like try to get the message across from one side to the other, regardless which direction is going. Yeah, and I, I think it's, I mean, I am in awe of all of y'all. I think it's really interesting how all of you guys are in really different little like pockets of little spheres in terms of like science communication and science policy those overlap a lot Mm -hmm. um but how there are already like a lot of similar like 
themes in in each of y'all's career that mm-hmm. connects to the idea of just communicating science to the public in ways that affect policy in ways that affect public understanding of things and, and things like that I think that's really interesting yeah, that's great so following up that um, what has been your experience as an LGBTQ plus person working in science communication and science policy and have you learned anything about your identities while being in the field and this is for, for everyone as well. I can actually start with this one because I've got a really good, I've got a doozy. Um, so I was in a, I was uh, speaking to an old white nuclear engineer, AKA my entire field um, uh, uh, yesterday. Um, and they were saying how awesomely accepting it has gotten for young people who are joining the nuclear engineering field. It was this like, it was this like recruitment, right? Like we're here to recruit you. Uncle Sam wants you to become a nuclear engineer again. Um, uh, and I pushed back saying like, I'm so glad it's becoming a more welcoming field. And like, it's true, it is. Partially because of the people on this panel who are like forcing our ways into in these spaces as LGBTQ people and saying like, we're gonna, we're, you're gonna build us um, a new table or we're going to, uh, you know, um, bring our own. But I had been turned down so many times, right? Like I got to the final round of a, of a huge fellowship that would have meant the world to my career. And I walked in and three old white guys looked down, saw my heels and said, absolutely not. There is no way you're going to represent us in this field, right? Like absolutely not gonna be a space that's not the only time, right? So like, it's the, I, I want this to be a great conversation. And I'm sure my other colleagues are going to tell great spaces about like why it, how awesome it is to be in the LGBTQ, LGBTQ in this, in this field. But the realism moment is that it is not always awesome. It definitely starts with a bunch of discrimination, which is why you basically have to have mentors. You basically have to have enough queer people in power that we can pull up our own and help each other, just like the old boys club of science has been doing for decades. So that's how I start my, I wanna start this part of the conversation is like, I remember what it was like being rejected for that fellowship, not because of what I knew. I was a, sorry, that was arrogant. I was a good scientist, right? I knew what I was talking, I'd gone to MIT. Like I, I, I knew what I was talking about, but I was not good enough to represent them because of how I looked because of my gender, like that was inappropriate um, and held, and honestly held back my field to be, I, I keep reminding them like that holds back science policy. It holds back science communications. It holds back science when we don't let everyone in. So I'll get off my high horse now. Sorry, that was it. I, th- I think I should probably go next because uh, I can see directly into this because I present as a six foot five white guy um, who went to a boarding school in England. Um, I did. I grew up in Hong Kong, then went to a boarding school. Um, and I walked in there at, and I was accepted into the old boys club of reporters, uh, all of the language, the misogyny um, that was just outright open, um, all the discrimination. Um, for, and that's across the board. That's, that's every single category you can imagine. Um, and sitting there as someone who, who, who is queer and feeling almost like you know you've got that sort of imposter syndrome where it's like I am an imposter here I'm sort of doing like some kind of mission impossible spy stuff here this is kind of really weird and I'm going to be brutally honest I was really afraid to get rid of that that privilege 
because I had that privilege. I could walk in there. And it took a very long time for me to decide that actually what I'm doing is, is not only selfish, which, which it absolutely is, um, and it's a self-defense mechanism. There's, there's a lot of reasons to it. There's a lot of different layers to it. But I need to start helping other people as well and sort of and, and be there. And also, I'm not being true to myself. I remember sitting at my desk and I was talking to a, a friend um, who, who's, who's trans, a guy called Harry, and, and we got talking and I found myself crying at my desk, just being open and honest about who I was. And that was the point where I went, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't pretend at all. Um, and I remember, I mean, I was fortunate enough very shortly after that to start working at Chemistry World, where the Royal Society of Chemistry is fantastic for the LGBT community. They completely support it. Um, I remember in Pride, they actually had um, rainbow lanyards and everybody took one and everybody continued wearing them through the entire year. If you go to Cambridge now, you will see that everywhere. Um, people just being completely accepting. Um, and it was it was like a, a weight had been removed. So, yes, I was using this kind of cloak of being one of the white guys, but it was the wrong cloak to be using. I'm just going to be honest about that. So when this when this question comes up for me, I have to think the fact that I've only been a trans a queer trans woman for a little over a year. So I have to think about it. And like, yes, I learned a lot of things and I'm going to save my story for the next question. Um, But one of the things that come up for me as as uh, when I look at like being somebody in the sciences, especially when I was in the Navy, was the fact that I was in that good old boys club but I wasn't right. Like I didn't fit in a hundred percent. Like it was, it wasn't as visible as Sam's experience, but it was, but it was something off the fact that I didn't like hanging out with the boys as much. That fact that when they talked about women in derogatory ways, I was just like, I feel uncomfortable. Like, you know, like that's the kind of the, the things that work for me because in, in, in nuclear engineering or the reactor operations in the, in the Navy, it's majority male. It's about 90% white. Um, so, so women were very disrespected. And so for me being somebody who was like trapped inside not knowing that I was one of the women, but felt this level of camaraderie. It was really hard because I found myself sticking up for, 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 for the women in my crew a lot without even me knowing it. So that's kind of my experience with it, but I have, I have a positive story after that, but yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's, it's interesting looking back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, honestly, one of the one of the benefits of remote work for me is that I no longer spend 30 minutes every morning wondering if my presentation is either going to get me misgendered or get me ignored. Um, you know, I, as, as a non-binary person, I, I actually quite enjoy playing with the presentation that I bring to the office. But if I dress more feminine, I get misgendered. Or, or, or rather, I get, you know, it's, I definitely get misgendered. But if I dress more masculine, it, it just... It, I want to do my job. <laughs> I want to show up to work and I want to do my job. And my concerns about having t- the energy that it takes to correct people repeatedly um, is exhausting. Um, and, I, you know, I do think that the colleagues that I've worked with 
there is a difference between the people who do the misgendering because they just mess something up in their brain that one day and the people who legitimately do not believe in my gender presentation. And I do understand that difference. Um, but, you know, I think that what remote work has allowed me to do is to be the advocate in a space where I don't necessarily have to be like in someone's face to tell them like, hey, did you know that your style guide like doesn't, it's not up to date. Like this was written a long, like as a, you know, from an, as a journalist, you know, as a uh, kind of entry level in the newsroom, you know, I still have a place at the table um, to, to be able to, to question some of the editorial decisions that are happening in the newsrooms that I work in. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely feel like I have my support system, um, but that support system is always there just in case, because there always seems to be the potential of a threat just around the corner. I'm always on guard. And that I think is, is frustrating because it detracts from what it is that I want to be doing. The four stories that you just heard are so much emotional labor. Did you, did you hear how yeah. much like non-academic, like not our jobs, not our, not our careers, our emotions, the amount of work that just went into that conversation with the last four people is extravagant. Think of what could be done if the, if the four of us would, instead of having all of these emotional worries about being LGBTQ in these fields, could just do our damn jobs, right? Like, I, I'm sorry, but I had to say that because yeah. you see it on all four of our faces when each one of us spoke we're trying so hard to relive a trauma and get through it and, and tell you about what it is like trying to be in this field. Instead of being like, you know what, this is, this is the awesome science thing that I, I, I did. Oh, and I happen to be LGBTQ. Like, like if, if, if it was like this afterthought, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interject, but like no, no. watching the four faces and how yeah. each of us literally, cause if even, even our mood kind of had to mm -hmm. be like a, okay, get through this story, explain what's going on. Yeah. Here you were. Anyway, so it just, it was something that I noticed that was like, wow. Yeah. That is, that is completely like on the nail. We, Beck and I wrote a piece for CNN a while ago. And like, we literally said that embrace, like embracing our identities. If we didn't have to worry about anything else, we would just do our work. And, you know, like speaking specifically in our field, which is academia, or doing research, if we didn't have to worry about all the things that, you know, for example, you like everyone talked about, we would do our research, you know, we will pull our, publish our papers, we will do everything that we have, like everyone does without, you know, this extra burden, this extra like baggage that we're carrying that is limiting our work. And that those like excellent words that you put that in. It's, it, and we have like yeah. four live examples here with different stories, but the same, you know, kind of situation where you are limited. By, yeah. by this suppression. There was a second part of that question though that I do that I forgot about until just now, which is <laughs> what has chemistry or like what has this taught you about mm. your identity? And um, you know, I feel as though chemistry has been my companion through all of this. There's something um <sighs> I find a lot of joy in the fact that the molecules don't care. Like all of these people that I work with, they care in ways that I don't fully understand. But the molecules are just like there. They exist in a material plane that I am allowed to explore with the freedom of the insights that I have based on my human experience. 
Um, and so one of the things that's basically the inspiration for the, the column that I write for Catapult is part of, you know, the ways that um, uh, the, the first essay that I wrote in that piece was about how the concept of resonance, how drawing structures in chemistry and how uh, resonance structures, you know, you might have a single bond in one drawing and a double bond in both drawings, but you don't jump back and forth between the two. A resonance structure is its own single truth, even if it's written on the page in different ways. I mean, that was a really important step for me in trying to come to terms with like, is my identity legitimate? I mean, that really is what all of this comes down to is that the constant pressure from the outside world ends up putting me into this tailspin of like, oh God, am I real? Do I exist? And the molecules are like, yeah, absolutely you do. <laughs> you have proteins, you are real. <laughs> I, I, read, I read that essay, it's just beautiful. You know, how do you finish that? I just resonate, it's just like, it's great, you know? Thank you for that. <laughs> great stuff, great stuff. So kind of moving forward, um, what has been a memorable experience? It can be good, it can be bad, it can be something relating to your LGBTQ identity, it could have something nothing to do with that. Um, what has been a memorable, ex memorable experience um, during your time in the field of science communication or policy? Sure. I'll go first on this one. So one thing that I was a memorable experience is we were having uh, a meeting with a bunch of researchers and scientists, like leaders in gender expression and identity, like academics, doctors, people who are much smarter than I that are just fantastic humans. And, and one of the things that I learned was we were talking about identities, right? So one of the things that I saw, I was like, there's a lot of old terms in our survey, like a lot of old terms that a lot of people like modern, like not modern day, but like people that are accepted in the, the, the flow of like trans lingo, for example, there was this phrase that was said is we got to meet people where they are. And, and, and I, and I, I remember this because because there was there were sections on there is like how do you identify and like transsexuals on there transvesti is on there and like all of these lists and like and then I, I I was like well wouldn't activists get mad that those terms are in there and this and this and the researcher said well that doesn't matter if a few people are upset with the language if there's trans people still identifying as those terms we have to meet them where they are we're not going to tell them who they're not right and and what I got from that conversation and the reason it was so memorable for me was that most of these researchers, most of these leaders in the field of gender identity and expression and like clinical research, we have members of WPATH in there and everything is the amount of care that they take in every single question every single answer choice, because not only are they thinking about their own identities, they're also thinking about the respondents and their identities and how they're gonna answer it and how they're gonna feel after they answer it. And, and, and that's the first time I think in my life where I experience like academics and scientists like go into like the emotional bank of like, hey, this is going to be something that the, that the respondents are going to have to deal with. So let's make sure that we do it correctly and do it with compassion. And, and I think that's what I got from that experience because I do work in a predominantly queer space because we're doing trans research. So, so that was probably one of the most memorable experiences because I felt like 
it's an evolution. It's a new way to do research. And I was like, of course this happened in a queer space, right? So, so that's what I, that's what I felt. Yeah. That's so cool. That's an amazing experience that you just described. So I'll, I'll go next um, with um, with sort of I'm gonna it's 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 kind of linked to to, to LGBT but but not directly because it's it, it's all about identity and being able to to sort of recognise and um, I, I, Sam was talking so eloquently about that sort of see it and be it um, you know having those role models in place um, so when I was doing the, the book which is um, a whole project unto itself um, I started looking at who the researchers were who discovered elements. That was a key part of what I was doing. And um, I very quickly found there was an incident where a Navy, US Navy fighter pilot had flown into a mushroom cloud. Um, and uh, sorry, it was an Air Force pilot. Flew into a mushroom cloud and he had died doing it. And his research from that, the filters from those planes uh, were the first signs of Fermium and Einstein. And we actually discovered elements doing that. And his family, uh, his daughter, he had um, a, a, a baby daughter at the time. This was in the 1950s. She's still alive. She knew that her father had died in, in this particular um, Operation Ivy Mike. She didn't know that he had been part of discovering elements. She didn't know that he had that, that huge legacy. So to be able to tell her that was incredible. Give it that kind of, this is your family legacy. And tying in from that, um, when I was researching at Oak Ridge uh, for the elements that have just been discovered, Tennessee, there is a researcher there called Clarice Phelps, um, who is the first African-American woman to have discovered an element. She was from a very uh, impoverished uh, areas of projects. She went to the US Navy. She was actually working on the reactors. Um, she then went to Oak Ridge and she became part of the element discovery team for, for Tennessee, element 117. And, and I say the first African-American woman um, to discover an element we have no idea who discovered iron or copper you know that was thousands of years ago but i tell you one thing it was not a white dude guaranteed um anyway <laughs> so no one had actually done the the, the 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 digging back and so clarice didn't know that she was the first she had no idea and to be able to tell someone you are the first person. You are the, the pathfinder here. You're the pioneer. I mean, <laughs> that was just shocking. It's just such an incredible feeling. Uh, and to see the sort of realization on someone's face when you say that. And there was a, a lot of controversy that later emerged because it went up on Wikipedia. She had a Wikipedia page deleted by people who just didn't. They, they said that it wasn't notable enough, um, her achievements. Uh, her, her page now does stand. But to be able to give someone that legacy, to be able to say you are that role model, and and that's that's an incredibly powerful thing. And so to be able to give someone that, I think that's probably sort of, I don't know how I top that. That's that's as far as my career goes. I don't know how anyone tops that case. That's right. I was like, good lord. Uh, next time, warn us so we cannot go after you. Um, that's astounding. I love I love the idea of legacy. I've been thinking about it a lot. Pandemic brings a, a lot into view, right? Like, what am, what am I leaving behind? And, and ironically, yet again, Kit, we are connected um, it, it, in this work, which is one of the things I am most proud of uh, is, is a law. It's a science policy law that I got to write that 
for the first time in history mentioned LGBTQ people. And it was a law that just passed last year called the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act. It transfers a lot of, in a short version, it transfers all the different uh, um, technical problems of the many digits of the phone numbers for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline to three. Just like we have 911, it basically creates a, not, uh, a 911 type of system, but for suicide prevention, which is my field, right? That's not, that That in by its very nature is a great way of, 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 of doing something, right? Like I was really, really proud of it, but we were able to get unanimous vote on this bill um, because a lot of the nuclear folks who I had helped advise on the Hill, I went into their offices, I said, you trust me. You trust me to keep you safe from nuclear war, right? Trust me here. This is something that is going to save lives too. And that it was that recognition, unlike what had happened before when I was starting my career, of you're right, you know things. As a scientist, as a science communicator, as a science policy person, you know things and we trust you to communicate to us in ways that are um, unexpected or, or, or things that we, we may not understand ourselves. And at the end of that bill, literally it is one of the last sentences of the bill, it says that you, the federal government has to make sure that 988, this big um, system, serves LGBTQ youth. Now, if you remember what I said earlier, we got every single member of Congress to vote for it, not just to pass it, but to vote positively for it, which means for the first time in history, science policy via the telecommunications, I know not chemistry, it's not as cool, but I'll get there someday, right? Um, right? Had people voting for LGBTQ lives which we will now for the rest of eternity be able to hold them to as a, you already voted for us once, what's an equality act, right? If you, if you, if you want this, why not that? That is, that is a legacy that I honestly, when it, when it passed in Congress, my husband, because it's a pandemic, we're all stuck inside. My husband was uh, upstairs watching the vote and comes falling, falling down the stairs. We just, hold each other because it's this really beautiful moment of that is going to be probably part of my legacy some people will they will never remember my name but they'll know 988 they'll know that lgbtq people were served by the federal government in a technical way and that is a, something that i'm going to be really really proud of i i don't know if that was actually what your question was about i realize now because i found it, I went into the legacy moment and I was like, hopefully this works. Um, but you said a good story, like something that is connected. And that is, that is one of those connections for me is, I don't think there will ever be a Wikipedia page about me and that's totally gonna be okay. What I really do uh, hope is that young queer kids in Kansas or who are about to join the nuclear Navy, right? Have someone to call. They, they know that they're being represented that they have someone who is thinking about them because that's going to be, I think, something really, really important. Yeah, yeah that's just amazing. I don't, yeah. I don't have words for that. <laughs> yeah, you you deserve to be so incredibly proud of yourself, Sam, and and you and everyone at the Trevor Project and everyone who's in D.C. fighting for LGBTQ youth and adults. And that's just amazing. I have nothing as big as any of those things. Um, and I That's had to okay. follow Kit. I had to try. I had to follow that Kit legacy. Uh, so I'm sorry, Ari. <laughs> no, That's no, okay. All, all, all stories are important, no matter how big or small. I'm going to go very small. Um, I came out while I was still in grad school 
And uh, it was just really at the beginning of the end of grad school for me. Um, but one of the last things that I did as a PhD student before I left was I taught a science communication class. I, 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 it was an ethics class, but I was like, if we're going to talk about ethics, we have to talk about how we communicate science. Um, and so I taught this class to the first year students. And um, I stood up on that first day and was like, hello, my name is Ari Rimmel. I am your teacher and I use they, them pronouns. And it was just like truly one of the scariest things that I had done. And then I was like, and we're not going to think about that anymore now that we did that. Um, and so I didn't think about it too much. I did the thing that I love, which is talking about science communication and talking to grad students. Um, and it wasn't until like at least a year later that one of one of the students from that class who I'd become friends with was like, oh, by the way, um, I wanted you to know that I use they, them pronouns now. And I was like, oh, I'm so proud of you. That's so exciting. She's like, no, no, no. I need you to know that it's because I saw you stand up in front of this class that I realized that it was possible to be a chemist who was non-binary. Um, and so they they just sent me that and I was like, well, I, it's the best thing that I will ever accomplish. <laughs> I did this one thing. Um, and uh, it, it just, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, wow, representation, like absolutely matters. <laughs> um, and that I was able to do that for someone doing something that I love was was really very meaningful to me. That's incredible. That's, yeah, like Kit said, that is not a small story. That's, that is incredible. I think something that's really great about, yeah, something that's really great about this whole panel is that in big and small ways in day-to-day -day actions, each and every one of y'all are affecting the lives of, it might just be one, it might just be two LGBTQ people, but like it helping one person come to terms with their identity or or whatever is is really impactful and I just commend all of y'all for that okay so um we're gonna do one more question and since I know that Sam and Josie have to hop off at eight I would love to if any of the audience members want to ask y'all any questions um Geraldo and I have some backup questions and if Ari and Kit want to stay on for longer please um do but so last question before we go into a little Q&A. Um, in the chemistry community specifically, science communication and science policy are considered non-traditional career paths. Um, so what advice would you give to people that might be interested in SciCom or SciPol, but are hesitant due to the response or perception of others? Are you allowed to swear on this podcast? We might bleep it out when, we, <laughs> when right. we're editing, but... <laughs> My response is you've got to be true to yourself uh, and you've got to do the things that uh, not necessarily make you happy but certainly aspire to be happy and enjoy your life and and do those things that you find that engage with you because what I find um, and I think most people find is the things that you're really good at are also the things that you're passionate about so if you love telling stories if you want to be that person who rushes into a bar and says guys this has just happened then this is that's what SciCom is. And the ability to translate, but as everyone has said, typically chemists are taught to write in a particular style, which is just not conducive to sharing information outside of direct collaborations. It's that very academic how to write a paper style. Whereas journalism is the reverse. It is the complete opposite. It's active uh, rather than passive. 
And so being able to have that, that ability to, to communicate and to break down information and to give it to people and to share it and to make them understand it is an incredibly useful and incredibly powerful gift. It will open up a host of doors for you if you can do that. And so don't think about careers as this traditional path. Because guess what, guys? 20 years ago, we didn't have robots doing jobs either. There is no such thing as a traditional career path anymore in chemistry and science. It just doesn't exist. To be honest with you, chemistry barely exists without having biology and physics involved. You know, everything is collaborative these days. And you can be part of that. And sharing that work is just as important. Uh, well, maybe not just as important as doing the work, but it's certainly up there and is valued just as much. This is the yeah. thing, like there is, it is a lie to think. This is, so the, sorry, I have a lot of emotions about this one. So as a person who was told that I wasn't a real nuclear engineer because I liked policy and was told that the only reason I got into these places was because I was different. I then very fast started to learn, like, yeah. And I got in because I was different. I didn't look like you, Todd. Right. Like I, 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 you know what, that is, that is what's going to get me a job. Right. Like I am, I am a, I was an intern a few years ago. I'm already a VP of a huge national organization. Cause I know what I'm talking about. Right. I am so tired of this idea that the traditional is, is the like only path. Kit said it perfectly, which is let's be very clear. Think of any of the greats, any of the greats. I, I dare you to find me a great who was like their entire career was like, you know what? I am absolutely going to follow the letter of the law. Definitely not going to color outside the lines and only follow this. No, Madam Curie was not listening to Todd and you shouldn't either, right? Like that's my world where I, I am very much in the space of, you know what? If, if they will push you out, build a new network. Congratulations. They don't get to be part when you take over the world. And I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic. I am literally saying, build you a network of science communicators, science policy folks who say, hey, I just heard about this fellowship. It's over here. Here's the application. I'm totally happy to do your recommendation because that is how you beat the Todds. That is, and to the, anyone listening whose name is Todd, I apologize. But yeah. like, 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 right, like that is how you do it because I, we, Kit is exactly right. It is not about glorifying tradition. It is about saying I make my own because the greats didn't do that either, right? Like it is, it is a fallacy that they use to hold minorities in place. It is a fallacy that says, if you don't go to this school, do this program, and then go to this job, you are not a real ex. That, yeah. If we figured out non-binary, we can figure this out. Okay. I'm uh, yeah. No, thank you for that. And and since Kit and Sam brought the why, I mean, not the why, but like how and, and do it, I'm going to bring in the why. Okay. So, so the reason that if you're queer and you're interested in this stuff, you got to get in because this is, this is the reality. We have so many questions that we need to answer. And there are, are great researchers out there that can do the work but we don't have the people that know how to talk to the people to give us money to be able to like convince people for like, like making sure that they can actually fund projects that actually can turn those science into policy and, and actually work with the scientists that need people like that communicate their work 
to the general public so more work can then be established on the top of the work that is already created. Like anything in academia, it builds on it itself. And if we don't have enough communicators to build that academia, we're gonna have a bottleneck, which we already have. We do not have enough funding to answer all the questions that our community needs. And that's why um, it's super critical to just basically say what Kit said, fuck them, just do it. Because, because that's what we have to do because nobody's gonna open the door for us. Sometimes we just have to bust it down and say, hi, I'm here and fabulous. And, and you can do that and it's okay. And there's gonna be people that are gonna fight for you. And whenever those barriers do exist, you have amazing people like the people on this panel that are gonna stand for you. And, and that's what we are as mentors is to mentor the next generation to say, you can do this because we've already taken the bumps and bruises to show you this is the path. And, and that's what we need to do as a community is work together and not be discouraged. Because if you feel discouraged, that probably means you need to do it even more because that means there's a deficit and, and we need this filled. So I get passionate too, Sam. I could do it. I'm fine. <laughs> um. I want to also add on this because I am fully on board with this energy that has been expressed here. I, I remember feeling really heartbroken when I decided to leave my program without completing the degree that I had gone there for. And the reason that I felt heartbroken was because I felt that I had failed as a scientist and I felt that I was betraying my love of science, right? I thought that the only way to engage with chemistry specifically and to engage with scientific research in a way that was valid was in actually being at the bench and doing the work. Um, and so when I think about what role I play in science now, first of all, I read way more papers day to day than I ever did as a graduate student. You know, I feel more engaged with what is going on in the scientific community, more able to identify the trends, where the, where the research is going, what fields are really important right now, and which fields are like ready to collaborate with each other. Like that is my job to keep a finger on that pulse. But if you even go back to like the basics of the scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis, you test it, you go through the rigmarole until you have a conclusion. And that final step is share it, right? And the thing is that like scientists in, in our <laughs> silo of academia and this ivory tower that so many scientists sit in, like are not actually very well positioned to make sure that the research that is funded with taxpayer money is actually being able to reach the communities that are most impacted by it. And what science communication and policy are able to do, and really what I see as a journalist is like, I feel like I am bridging that gap, that little broken rung in the ladder across the, the, the cavern that is the scientific community and the public to make sure that, that people are actually having access to the information that they need in order to make meaningful decisions in their lives. So I, I don't identify like as a research scientist anymore, but I feel much more connected and I feel I can contribute more to what science is now than I ever did when I was at the bench. Those are all like very powerful. Yeah, very powerful I, got, I, got chills. I know. <laughs> I know I'm like just so geeked right now. Uh, anyway, great, great answers um, from everybody. I would like to take a little bit of time for Q and A's. Um, 
participant, Jude, I saw that you typed some stuff in the chat, but if you would like to say it out loud, um, since we're recording this, if you're fine with being recorded, um, just so that people who listen to this episode later can hear the questions. Oh yeah, I could just say it. So my question was, where would you like to see science communication in like five to 10 years? Or, and like, what do you think is possible for the field? What do you see it becoming and stuff like that? I would like to see scientists, academic researchers who do some element of communication in their work to have that recognized in their promotion packages. <laughs> I would like for people to pay for the labor that is the actual skilled job that science communication has to do. I mean, I think that there is a bigger push these days um, to, to a recognition within the scientific community that the, that the way things have been going is not actually, it's, it's not working. Um, you know, I think there's a recognition with more, uh, especially graduate, I mean, I feel like a lot of these movements are very student led, um, trying to get the training that they need in order to communicate meaningfully with an audience that doesn't have a research expertise. But that work is very rarely compensated in the way that it deserves to be. Um, so, you know, my hopes in five to 10 years is to really, really see people actually think a little bit more about that broader impact statement on their NSF grant um, and try to, I, I think that one of the things that scientists so often do is, especially in a graduate school environment, is go out into communities and like do one sort of uh, after school activity with an elementary school class and they're like I have done my thing and that is a thing it's an important thing but we need to actually start thinking meaningfully and evidence-based about how we go about doing this work and how do we reevaluate when things aren't you know how do we course correct right so I have a lot of hope that we've got some of the momentum specifically in the younger generations that's going to build the infrastructure for science communication to be a sustainable part of the industry that is academia and actual research science. I think in five to 10 years, Ari's brilliant point that the students will start to now be the professors and thus the current people that are like in that early to mid career, right? Just out uh, of um, college are gonna start being in leadership at professional societies, in leadership at, uh, Fortune 500 companies in leadership on boards of directors, right? So in five to 10 years, companies can start to hire more science communicators, thus giving an act a capitalist, sorry, capitalism, but like an, a capitalist reason to create more science communicators. DC, already run by the gays, is gonna be basically just filled with science policy folks who recognize that it's I've got to have job security and without actual protections like the Equality Act, I don't have security in a field where people who don't look like me, love like me or act like me are in charge. So I believe in five to 10 years, that decade from now, we will have secured power. Think of how much we've done in the last couple of decades. We're coming, what, 50 years off the stone wall, right? In another decade, that's a lot of progress of power. And I think LGBTQ individuals will 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 quickly figure out how to build that network and power so that way they can actually forward the field because that's what I think in, in, yeah a decade from now we're going to run we're going to run a lot more than we do now and we'll be able to recruit because you'll be able to see 
how different this panel would be. I, I love all four of us, by the way. This, I mean, I was like, this is an astounding panel. But what if this would have been all uh, queer heads of professional societies, heads of universities, heads of Fortune 500 companies? I would have loved that panel too because it would have said, it would have given young Sam the like, oh, okay. There's a field like I I I can make it through this awful quantum mechanics class, uh, right? Because there's going to be someone who looks like me, or that I can talk to about what were their struggles. Um, that's what I hope for in ten years. Um, well, uh, I think you've got two fantastic answers there. Um, what do I want to see in five to ten years? You, Jude. I want to see you involved. Um, get involved. Just just go ahead. Um, I'm going to give you one that's a little bit more abstract. Um, so I think absolutely we need funding. Absolutely. People are going to start seeing themselves, which means we don't need to start worrying about having those see it and be it mentors, those those leadership figures. They will be there. They'll be in place. Um, and that's going to make such a difference. What you are going to stop seeing is I don't know if you remember this about 10 years ago, the EU had this they, they wanted to get more women in science. And so they, they commissioned a huge advertising campaign called Science, It's a Girl Thing. And it involves chemists posing next to lipstick and, uh, and doing powder for their eyes, all that kind of stuff. You're not going to see that because actual women are going to be consulted before they make the adverts. Um, they're going to talk to people from different groups. You're going to start seeing those groups better represented, which means you're going to stop seeing those discriminatory ads, which is going to have a snowball effect. More people are going to stop um, feeling that there is this boundary, which is being created by people who are being very well-meaning, probably, but it's still creating a boundary. That's all going to go. One thing I do want to see as well is more mixed media. Um, at the moment in science communication, we are very much behind the curve in that. Um, I want to see more things. We, we've got things like Twitch and, and, and TikTok. You're starting seeing that. You're seeing documentaries as well. Um, some fantastic ones that have just come out. But... At the moment, we've got a situation where I think the, com the computer game industry is pretty much as the cinema was in the 1920s. Um, you know, if we get in there really early, we can do some incredible science communication using that medium. And that speaks to um, so many people. It's billion dollar industry that we can get inside and we can actually have meaningful conversations and people can start seeing it as a viable career. Um, so the, I think what we need to do is, is get those young voices in there who recognize this, who have the impetus and the will and the excitement about those different media and start sharing the message and start spreading science communication across to people who it would never otherwise reach. Yeah, great point, Kit. So I know that Josie and Sam have to hop off. Do you guys have anything else you want to add before you have to leave us? Yes, as I need to see the transition between my bosses. Um, I just want to say, um, if you want to know more about the research that the National Center for Transgender Equality is doing, go to transequality.org, or you can go to ustranssurvey.org to find out more information about the survey that we're going to be fielding. That is where you can find the 2015 report, which is probably the most important scientific data set that exists for our community as far as policy. And uh, so we're working very, very hard on that. So stay tuned. We're going to be hoping to field a survey early next year, which is going to be extremely exciting because we're going to get this data set. And uh, I wish we had more time for me to talk about what we're doing with the USDS because it's quite exciting work. So um, yeah, so if you want to find out more, please go and check us out and donate. Pride!
Come on. Don't I tell law, the transgender law center though? They're the ones that put this on. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Oh, I guess you put it on, but we're doing this for them. So yes, please donate to them as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Josie. And I'm going to do, I have learned many, uh, many years back um, when an astounding colleague says something brilliant, you simply raise up their voices and build a great network. Josie is truly leading great work when it comes to this survey. So be on the lookout. If you're a trans person, you need to be filling out the survey. You need to be making sure that we have your data because that is how science policy and science work happens. So fill out Josie's survey uh, and the world will be a better place. Thank you all so much for being here today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you. you thank you so much, Josie and Sam. Yeah. Thanks for being friends of the pod. Yes. Okay. So um, everybody else who is still here, um, we can definitely stay and chat if um, Jude or any of the other audience members have other questions that they want to ask Ari and Kit to really well-established um, science journalists and science communicators, then they are open. Um, uh, hi, everyone. Uh, sorry, I joined in a, a little bit late. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, I was talking to my friend because we're trying to uh, have a little bit more uh, of this diversity conversation uh, in our university. One of the things that we were talking about was the effort it already takes, as uh, someone was saying earlier, the the effort and the work of existing merely in the space, and then the other effort it takes of explaining why we are allowed to exist in this uh, same space. I, I find that is such a, a strong indication of your bravery, and it shouldn't be a bravery or resilience, but you know it, it is already there i just wanted to thank you so much for that and uh, i just wanted to ask how do you take the steps uh, i mean i know the routine steps of like okay I, i'm living the routine or whatever uh, but but to to build your career to um, make the decision that you have to make to end up after you know, once once you're done, I don't know if that question makes sense to you. I'm just very nervous. So, kind of, what are what are the steps to end up to where where they're at in their career? Exactly, because yeah. this is already alternative career, alternative chemistry, alternative this and that. Although it, it makes perfect sense that it's not alternative anymore; it's just what it is now. But but in in a world where uh, all that we are being taught, even though we are at the frontier of science, uh, is what has already been there, how do you carve out that path and lead that to, you know, if it, if it ends up in scientific communication, in academia, in industry, wherever you end up, how do you day-to-day -day or a career decision-wise land where you are, if that um, makes sense? That, that does. Um, I'm going to say that it's not a step. It's, it's, it's thousands of steps. It's lots of, lots of tiny little steps along the way. And you don't, I, I would never imagine that I met where I've ended up. I just, I could not have seen that. What I did was I looked at the time and made the decisions there. And you've got to live in the present. The one thing I would say is don't be afraid to be told no. You know, so what? No one remembers. 
no one's going to remember the fact that you know you, you got rejected for something you don't even have to tell people go for the things you want and if you get it fantastic it's an exciting opportunity for you if you don't you haven't lost anything don't be afraid to ask um, and I say this as someone who regularly writes emails and literally has a panic attack before I send them and sort of oh my god why did I write that um, when I applied for chemistry world this is absolutely true true on the on the letter I misspelled chemistry I mistyped it um, and I noticed after I sent it and I was I was like they're never going to give they're never even going to give me an interview um, and yet it came to pass and it was probably the, the best career move I've ever made. Um, so it is lots and lots of little, little different steps. The, th the key thing is, is not to be afraid, is to try things. Don't put yourself off. Don't get in your way. If there's something that you want, apply for it. The worst they can say is no. I'm going to also add with my teacher hat on because one, one, the, probably the only thing I actually really miss about grad school is being a teaching assistant. I loved teaching chemistry. Um, and in all of the classes that I learned about the art of teaching, one of the first lessons you always get is the fixed versus growth mindset. And a fixed mindset is when you go into a problem saying, uh, you know, I we'll give the example, like very often children are told early on, you're so smart. Um, and then they come across a problem that's really hard and they can't solve it. And they're like, wow, I guess I'm not smart. Um, whereas if you get take a kid and you say, hey, you worked really hard on that. Good job for applying your skills. When they uh, when they get to a harder problem, what ends up happening is they just try harder. It, a fixed mindset will crack under pressure where a growth mindset will it allows you to take each no as an opportunity to go in a different direction. And so part of what I have done in my career, I guess, if I will think, I, I have a hard time thinking of what I've done as a career because I feel like I've jumped between different things. But what allowed those jumps to happen was a very therapy assisted belief that I deserve to be happy. <laughs> you know, there was a recognition that, you know, I have a driving curiosity that is valid, that I have every reason to pursue. And I think that for me, what allowed me to take the opportunities in front of me was first of all, get going there, <laughs> figuring out what they are. Um, but number two, doing the work that I needed so that I was able to feel like I deserved to do that, if, if that makes any sense. I mean, I really feel like that was the biggest barrier for me for a really long time. Um, but that was its own very exhausting series of work and continues to be an exhausting series of work. So so all of this is to say that, um, you know, I agree with what Kit said. You, you follow what you love. You follow that spark, right? You follow because... Uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be hard. Everything's going to end up hard. And what gets you through it is that fire in your belly. And that is your greatest asset. It's, it's the strongest thing that you have. Um, and and it's, it's worth protecting. Well, <laughs> I don't know if any of your listeners are also speechless, but I thank you so much. <laughs> Very inspiring. Incredible. Any other questions or anything? If nobody else has one, mine is, my question's a little bit more like on the personal side since I really want to go into science communication. Um, like, so I'm an undergrad 
And I was wondering what sort of things that I should focus on to study on, like what kind of skills that I should be building. Um, yeah. So the UK has a completely different system to the US. Um, we don't have that kind of structured, you know, take take little bits uh, course uh, style. We, we have very much a prescriptive, this is what you do and, and here's your degree and well done. And a, a very old man with a very, very long beard comes out and puts a stupid cape on you and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's, it is Hogwarts, um, <laughs> to be honest. Anyway, um, uh, so I can't really tell you what to do in your degree. What I would say is ultimately isn't isn't as big a worry as you think it is right now it doesn't that isn't where you're going to end up and don't don't think that it's going to pigeonhole you you can move around you can take different aspects you know i didn't do any kind of psychom at, um, at undergraduate uh, level or my master's degree at all so don't think that it's going to set you on the way um and, and don't have that that sort of mindset you've, you've got a lot more flexibility than you think yeah, I would echo that. I mean, I feel that um, undergrad can be such a cool time, especially, well, the US system is really nice that you can try a bunch of things. Uh, but I also, I didn't think about science communication at all until I was like two or three years into a PhD program. Um, and then I was like, oh, I got a course correct real quick <laughs> because I have not, I am not prepared. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, some resources that I would highly recommend for this, um, the open notebook is a great set of, like anything you can think about, uh, anything that you might want to know about how you get started in science communication, that platform is great for that. Um, and I see Kit giving the thumbs up. I mean, it's, it's, really remarkable what they've been able to do in the short amount of time that they've been publishing. So that is really great. You know, I think the other thing, um, I mean, I probably was always going to be a reporter. I love the informational interview. Um, I just like started emailing people and I'm like, hey, you do a thing that I think is really cool. And I would like to know how you got there, you know? And so when I was early on, when I was trying to figure out what kind of science communication I wanted to do, I talked to um, to friends of friends who had done the uh, AAAS Mass Media Fellowship and friends who had done the Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. And I talked to even another set of people who were museum curators, right? I just was not afraid to email people and ask them because again, the worst thing that happened was they were gonna say no. Um, uh, I mean, so I just, uh, I mean, I think that when you are early on, again, following that passion, following the thing that, it, because that's really the skill set that when you actually get to this career that ends up being, being an asset. I mean, I think that especially in a journalism world, which again is, is where I'm coming from, what sets reporters apart is their voice and their and their perspective or the perspective that they bring to that team. And so the only way to have a unique voice and perspective is to know who you are. And again, that's like a constantly developing process and you are by no means even supposed to know that as, as an undergrad. Um, but I, I, I think- I don't know that and I'm not an undergrad. undergrad. I have yeah, no I, idea I, what I my mean, voice like, is. I, I pretend to know things. I know things on paper. Um, and I'll go have an existential crisis after this and try to figure out if I actually uh, mean any of this. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the existential crises are for off screen. Um, but yeah, I mean, just uh, you should explore. 
Anything that gets you an opportunity to do writing is really great. But science communication, as we've talked about, is not just a print medium anymore. I mean, podcasts are, everyone has podcasts now. They're great for a lot of different reasons. Videos. I am actually going the, the, uh, I can't remember who, which of these conferences. There's a whole conference that has a panel on like how to do SciComm on TikTok. And I'm like, yes, let's do SciComm on TikTok. Just like choose your medium and go rainbows. <laughs> Just like make it happen. You can do it. Awesome. Great answers. Great questions. Yes. That was awesome. Thank you. So does anybody have any other questions or should we wrap it up? Awesome. Well, thank you, Kit and Ari. Thank you. Those of y'all who were able to join us, those of y'all who are listening at home, thank you for listening. Um, we encourage you to go and donate to the Transgender Law Center. Um, we'll be highlighting a bunch of other incredible trans-led um, organizations for the rest of our events um, throughout Pride Month. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Peraldo, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, no, just thank you for participating. Thank you for being here with us. And yeah, stay tuned for our next, next live panel. <laughs> yeah, all right. Have a great night, y'all. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All Pride Summer will be hosting other great events that highlight LGBTQ plus scientists in a variety of fields. Each episode will raise funds for a different organization in the United States that is working to save the lives of transgender adults and youth, which feels especially necessary given the huge number of anti-trans legislation that have been proposed in countless states in this country this year. Next Thursday, June 17, we'll be having our second panel, LGBTQ plus in industry, benefiting the Trans Women of Color Collective. So stay tuned, we'll be tweeting more information about this in the next couple of days. We're very excited to continue our Summer Pride panel series. We hope that y'all are being safe and healthy and continuing to support each other during this pandemic. Please, please, please get your vaccine, y'all, to keep yourself and those around you safe. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQC Pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see y'all soon. Bye. Adios. Bye.